Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. John 6, 32-36 Jesus always tells the truth. He has never lied, he never lies, and he never will lie. It is on this fact that I stake my faith. If one lie emerged from his mouth, how would I be able to trust him with my life? To paraphrase the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, and if we do not have eternal life as he promised, Christians are the most pitiful people on the planet. The historical evidence for Jesus being who he said he was is immense. He fulfilled 333 Old Testament prophecies, a complete statistical improbability for any human. The experiential evidence for Jesus' honesty is also immense. I've seen him work mightily in my own life and in the lives of loved ones. I am more than willing to stake my life and eternity on the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. Yes, Jesus always tells the truth, which is why with each passing year, I became more and more bewildered by his words in John 6:35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. A full stomach, to me, meant that my desire for him would make all others fade, that I would constantly feel the warmth of his presence, and that my deepest yearnings for untainted intimacy with him would be fulfilled this side of heaven. But when I turned 29, this definition of a full stomach seemed more like a distant mirage than a holy reality. Because even after years of following Jesus, my desire for an earthly romance outshouted my desire for him. I was told over and over that I needed to be satisfied in Jesus alone, but despite my best efforts, I could never grab hold of this elusive satisfaction. It wasn't for a lack of devotion. From a young age, I had been committed to following him wherever he led and longed to know him better with each passing year. It wasn't for a lack of evidence of his love. Jesus drew near to me in the pain and confusion of depression and showed me again and again that he knew me and loved me personally. Still, as my relationship with him grew deeper, the desire for a spouse did as well. The truth of Jesus' words coexisting with what I felt was an empty stomach provoked a cognitive dissonance that haunted me. How could these two apparently opposing realities both be true? If Jesus was the bread of life, why did such a loud longing for human love persist? In my frustration, I tossed aside nuance and took a binary approach. Either God was not fulfilling his promises, or I was completely missing Jesus' point. Although binaries can be dangerous, in this case, it was a good place to start. 
because at my core, I knew it wasn't God, but I who had the problem. If Jesus always tells the truth, I must have misunderstood what he meant by a full stomach and quenched thirst. As I began year 29, I was desperate for my mind to be renewed, to rightly understand what he meant so I could finally silence the voices that told me God wasn't holding up his end of the deal. So shortly after my birthday, I prayed a bold prayer, a hopeful prayer. Jesus, show me this year what it means that you are the bread of life. And he answered. As I sought God, three myths I'd believed about satisfaction in Christ emerged, and slowly but surely, God has been transforming my mind with his truth. In the next three episodes of Hope Unyielding, I'm going to explore these three myths and share what God taught me about satisfaction in Christ while my earthly longing for a spouse goes unfulfilled. I pray that you too will know and experience the marvelous truth that Jesus is the bread of life. Today, I'm going to share about the myth that kept me in a cycle of shame for years, that made me feel as though I was perpetually stuck in the mire of spiritual immaturity, that I would never achieve the pure devotion to Christ that he asked of me. I believed this myth, that true satisfaction in Christ meant I would no longer desire marriage. On my 29th birthday, I was still hungry. Another 365 days of unanswered prayer, another 52 weeks of hope, again answered only with the teasing aroma of the feast that seemed would always be for other women and never for me. I had grown up marinating in the beauty and simplicity of the love stories of older sisters and mothers in the faith. The fulfillment of their heart's desire had followed a neat formula, a list, a prayer, and a short wait, a faithful two plus two equals stomach filled. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, was part of that formula. There was a simple explanation for Psalm 37.4 my mentors told me. If God put that desire in you for a spouse, he plans to fulfill it. And if it's not in his will for you to marry, then he will change your desires. There was no reason for these well-intentioned mentors to question this theology. Their experience had validated it. But as I looked out at the horizon of year 29, the hunger pangs persisted. With no prospects of a husband in sight, it certainly didn't seem like God planned to fulfill this desire of my heart. So why wasn't he changing my desires like they told me he would? If Jesus was enough to satisfy, then why did this yearning for human love consume me? If Jesus was enough, wouldn't my stomach be filled and my tears dried? At this point, I realized I needed to closely examine my theology surrounding desire and satisfaction in Christ, a theology that I now see had been just as influenced by the Christian culture of the late 90s and early 2000s as it had been by scriptural truth. I needed to pray for wisdom to separate any misguided ideas I had absorbed in my teens from what Jesus really meant. My mentors had meant well but I now suspected that they had conflated their personal experience with scriptural truth. 
Perhaps just as influential as my mentors, though, was what I'd read. I'd always been an avid reader. In third grade, a librarian once lent me a suitcase to carry the 30-plus books I had checked out. And starting in my early teens, I devoured every Christian dating book I could get my hands on. Around that time, a chain letter of sorts was circulating in the church claiming that until you were completely satisfied with Christ, God would not bring you a spouse. Here's an excerpt. Everyone longs to give themselves completely to someone, to have a deep soul relationship with another, to be loved thoroughly and exclusively. But God, to a Christian, says, no, not until you are satisfied, fulfilled, and content with being loved by me alone, with giving yourself totally and unreservedly to me, with having an intensely personal and unique relationship with me alone. Discovering that only in me is your satisfaction to be found, will you be capable of the perfect human relationship that I have planned for you. You will never be united with another until you are united with me alone, exclusive of anyone or anything else, exclusive of any other desires or longings. And then, when you are ready, I'll surprise you with a love far more wonderful than any you could dream of. You see... Until you are ready, and until the one I have for you is ready, I am working even at this moment to have you both ready at the same time. Until you are both satisfied exclusively with me and the life I prepared for you, you won't be able to experience the love that exemplifies your relationship with me. This quote, letter from God, sounded beautiful at the time, but flowery words are often good at passing off error as truth especially to 13-year-olds who haven't learned to test everything against scripture. The poem does get it right in some ways. It affirms God's love for us, and it upholds marriage as a picture of Christ in the church. But theologically, it has many problematic ideas about satisfaction in Christ. I want to focus on two of them. Firstly, this poem presents satisfaction in Christ as a means to an end. Take this line for example. Discovering that only in me is your satisfaction to be found, will you be capable of the perfect human relationship? This is contradictory. If only in Christ is our satisfaction to be found, then why is the perfect human relationship still dangled like a carrot? Rather than telling us to seek satisfaction in God because he is truly satisfying, this poem implies that once we are finally satisfied in him, boom! He'll bring us a spouse as a reward for learning our spiritual lesson. Crassly put, it seems to encourage using reverse psychology on the king of the universe, essentially faking God and ourselves out to get what we want. Perhaps this wasn't the author's intention, but it's how I and many others understood it as teens. But did the psalmist really mean that God would give each of us a love story Walt Disney would be proud of? Or that, if not, he would transform us into asexual beings with no desire for marriage? When well-intentioned people used Psalm 37.4 to promise that satisfaction with God would result in the reward of a spouse, did they take into account that Job delighted himself in the Lord and lost his children and his health? The Apostle Paul delighted himself in the Lord, yet he was plagued by a thorn in the flesh that wasn't removed even after he pleaded three times. 
or that Jesus, God in the flesh, delighted himself in the Godhead, yet he dreaded the cross and asked the Father if there was another way. When we look at Job, Paul, and our risen Lord, it's clear that the American interpretation of Psalm 37-4 contradicts the lives of many who had a close relationship with God. Alexander McLaren's commentary was especially helpful as I sought to better understand Psalm 37-4. He cautions us not to, quote, vulgarize that great promise by making it out to mean that, if we will be good, he will give us the earthly blessings which we wish. Sometimes we shall get them, and sometimes not. But our text goes far deeper than that. God himself is the heart's desire of those who delight in him, and the blessedness of longing fixed on him is that it ever fulfills itself. They who want God have him. Vulgarize is a strong word, but I think it's an apt description of what we do when we view satisfaction in Christ as a means to an end. God offers us himself. How sad it is that we run past his open arms as we greedily look for his gifts. McLaren vividly describes how prone we are to fear, instability, and disillusionment when our happiness depends on temporal gifts rather than the eternal giver. He says, We give perishable things supreme power over us, and so intertwine our being with theirs, that the blow which destroys them lets out our lifeblood. And, therefore, we are ever disturbed by apprehensions and shaken by fears. We tie ourselves to these outward possessions as alpine travelers to their guides, and so, when they slip on the icy slopes, their fall is our death. Especially comforting is McLaren's view that delighting oneself in the Lord doesn't mean extinguishing natural desires, but that, quote, desire after God will bring peace by putting all other wishes in the right place. He says, The counsel in our text does not enjoin the extinction, but the subordination of other needs and appetites. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Let that be the dominant desire which controls and underlies all the rest. McLaren's commentary helped me to see Psalm 37.4 with new eyes, and the passage has started to comfort rather than frustrate me. King David's call to delight ourselves in the Lord now reminds me of Moses' plea that the Israelites choose life over death. In Deuteronomy 30.19-20, it says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Delighting ourselves in the Lord is to choose vivid, solid life over fear and instability. Making any desire other than God our chief pursuit will only lead to death and disappointment. Even fulfilled desires are not indestructible. A spouse may pass away, a job may be lost, a friendship may fall apart. If we are led by these desires, like the alpine skier tied to his guide, 
we will fall as soon as the object of our desire fails us. But when we hold fast to God as Moses exhorted the Israelites, we don't need to fear falling. The context surrounding Jesus' claim that he is the bread of life speaks to this truth. When the crowd begged Jesus to miraculously multiply bread as he had when he fed the 5,000, they were seeking Jesus as a means to the perishable, short-sighted end of filling their stomachs. Jesus, though, knew that vastly more important than their hunger for bread was their need for his grace. So instead of fulfilling their temporal desires, he offered them a much greater gift, the eternal fulfillment of spiritual hunger. Following Christ should never be a means to an end. For the Christian, following Christ should be our chief end. And for the Christian, the gift that Jesus offers us is far greater than any we can imagine. Perhaps the best way to summarize scripture's overarching narrative concerning earthly desires is Jesus' words in John 16.33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As I walk with Christ, McLaren's interpretation has held true. With each passing year, Jesus continues to reveal layers of the hope I've been called to and I am more delighted in him than ever. Yet as I grow deeper in the Lord, my desire for a spouse remains. For a long time, I felt ashamed about this. I'm seeing though that this shame does not come from scripture, but again, from ideas I absorbed in childhood. This idea that it's possible for everyone to get over their desire for a spouse is also found in that quote unquote, love letter from God in lines like, until you are both satisfied exclusively with me. Many other sources have told me I need to come to a place where I'm okay with never being married, where Christ perfectly fulfills my yearning for earthly romance. I imagined this kind of satisfaction would feel like this. Every morning, I wake filled with strength and purpose. The marriage I used to want is a speck ever receding in my rearview mirror as I speed toward Jesus with giddy joy. The desire for romance is no more. Now, all my desire is oriented toward him. Human connection is no longer something I crave. It's nice, but unnecessary. I feel the Father's love so deeply that I never crave human touch. Purity requires no effort because sexual desire never frustrates. I go through my days singing the words of Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. For years, I felt ashamed that I couldn't live up to this ideal, but I now see that I was actually pursuing a distortion of what God asked of me. The more I reflect on my idea of satisfaction in Christ, the more I realize it sounds like Buddhism. The third of Buddhism's Four Noble Truths is that, quote, the way to extinguish desire, which causes suffering, is to liberate oneself from attachment." Unquote. Isn't that essentially what I imagined satisfaction in Christ was? To be free of the need for human relationships so I could do more for God? In scripture though, I don't see loving God equated with detaching ourselves from the desire for human intimacy. The ideal I had constructed sounded a lot more like the Buddhist pursuit of nirvana 
than the often gritty process of sanctification. Jesus tells us to love him first and foremost, and sometimes that does involve choosing him over human relationships. I think of his words in Luke 9:57 through 62. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. These are difficult words. Jesus clearly says when we become his followers, our actions must show that our first loyalty is to him. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you are my true follower, you will no longer care about your family. You will not miss their closeness, desire their embrace, crave their laughter. Jesus' focus here is on how we act in response to his call. Are we willing to give up what is most important to us for his sake? He doesn't, however, say or even imply that when we follow him, our natural human desires will disappear. Marriage is not only a natural desire, it's a good desire. Scripture portrays marital love as something that should be celebrated and savored, a picture of Christ in the church. But yes, it is certainly possible to make an idol out of marriage. In Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller defines an idol as, quote, something we cannot live without. We must have it, and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. By that definition, marriage has certainly been an idol in my life, and I've continually had to tear it from the throne of my heart when the prospect of being single makes me feel that life isn't worth living. Sometimes though, in an attempt to turn from idolatry, I've gone to the extreme of feeling ashamed when the desire persists. No, my ultimate satisfaction is not to be found in another person, but part of being created in God's image means that I desire relationships and intimacy. For some of us, this may not involve marriage, but all of us are relational beings who were not meant to live solitary lives. As God said of Adam in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Throughout my 20s, I continued to carry the burden of shame. Trying to kill these desires was like playing a rigged game of whack-a-mole. More prayer, more Bible study, more crying out to God, then more self-flagellation for my weakness and immaturity. But was this what God expected of me? Perhaps the most powerful answer comes from the life of Jesus himself. Isaiah 53, 3-5 says, 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Does Jesus' life experience reflect the idea of satisfaction I described? Did he wake up each day with unbridled joy, unaffected by loneliness, longing, and rejection? No, he was a man of sorrows who felt each emotion as deeply as any of us. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. The fact that he had the Father's love didn't erase the grief of his dear friend's passing. Jesus did not have an inexhaustible reservoir of emotional energy. He retreated from the crowd to grieve when his cousin John was killed. And let's not forget that Jesus himself was single and celibate for 33 years. In Hebrews 4.15, we are told that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and this certainly includes sexual temptation. We can be reasonably sure that Jesus had sexual desires and longed for physical touch, but knew that in order to fulfill God's will, those desires would have to go unfulfilled. Would we accuse him of not being satisfied in his Father or in the power of the Holy Spirit? The fact that Jesus experienced the same unfulfilled desires as we do, yet did not sin, is what makes him the perfect high priest who not only intercedes for us, but understands our hearts. Jesus didn't numb his emotions in Gethsemane, but poured his heart out to his Father. And although he denied himself and submitted himself to the Father's will, he never denied the existence or the intensity of his fears. When we look at the life of Jesus, it's clear that we are in good company. And it's clear that we can be his devoted followers while still longing for a spouse. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hope Unyielding. This was part one in a three-part series on myths I've believed about what it means to be satisfied in Christ when earthly desires go unfulfilled. This series is an adaptation of my free ebook, Unsatisfied, which you can download on my website, hopeunyielding.com. So if you don't want to wait to hear myths two or three, or if you're just more of a reader, check out hopeunyielding.com or click the link in the show notes to get your free download. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. I pray that Jesus would overwhelm you with the truth that he is the bread of life.